Hey, what's up? It's Thursday. Hope your day is going well. Um, we're getting into President's Day weekend coming up. Also, for some places, that means ski skate week or a President's Day week break, whatever that may be. So, yeah, coming up into that. And, you know, there's so many things we could talk about. Uh, more chaos with Nikki Haley. We have talk about, well, actually, no. Here's, here's what I'll start with is that it looks like we still don't know about the three other objects I've been talking about, the unidentified objects that we shot down. But what we are starting to find out is that this Chinese balloon, the spy balloon, that was the size of three buses, was supposed to kind of fly over Guam and some of the South Pacific, but due to issues with Chinese technology or what it, whatever it is, it ended up floating a little bit too far north and then coming down from Alaska through the United States. And this does seem like one of those kind of Occam's razor type of situations where were the Chinese doing this on purpose or was it just a huge collapse in technology and just a kind of complete mess up by them? And a lot of people from the beginning were saying that this seems like the Chinese just miscalculated or made a stupid error and this thing was not actually supposed to end up where it is. And the more reports we're seeing, it seems like that Chinese big balloon just kind of ended up there because they didn't do a good job. <laughs> so yeah, we'll start with that. A lot of other things we could talk about, but I'm going to start today with one of my Netflix rants. And listeners are probably aware, probably about every couple weeks, I go into some sort of diatribe about my grievances towards Netflix and just kind of everything the company keeps doing. First, it was canceling shows before they could even finish, and I'm still waiting to see if that happens with Ginny and Georgia, so fingers crossed. Next, it was the password bullshit. That is just so stingy, plus it's going to make it hard when I go abroad to hold on to my account that I'm paying for, because, you know, they have that thing where you have to access a code and they give you a week of access. Can you restart it? We don't really know. And then to put icing on the cake, the price keeps going up. I was looking at my recent bill. I mean, I'm paying like 17, 18 bucks, close to 20 bucks a month for the service. And it seems like it's getting less and less worth it. Kind of the law of diminishing returns, if you really think about it. I mean, I think that I think if you wanted to write a book about about streaming services, the law of diminishing returns would probably be the theory to put behind it, but my new grievance, because these are all old ones, is that Netflix is taking Arrested Development off the platform completely. The first, I think, what, three seasons were not produced by Netflix, but Netflix actually produced the last two seasons, which, by the way, were really bad compared to the first three, but I'll still watch them. They're still entertaining enough. They're kind of like popcorn. You know, you once you kind of take a few bites, you keep eating it. So anyways, like, I like to go back once in a while and rewatch Arrested Development. Sorry, but it's true. And this is really irritating because it's another example of streaming platforms taking their own content off of the platforms. And Variety has an article that writes here in quotes, All episodes of Arrested Development are set to leave Netflix on March 15th, including seasons 4 and 5, which, pro which produced by Netflix themselves. Though the show's departure adds to a growing trend of streaming originals disappearing from their respective uh, sorry respective platforms. And I think this is ridiculous because <clears throat> if I understand this correctly, 
Arrested Development has two seasons produced by Netflix, and because of that, it's considered a Netflix original. So now, if it's taken off of the platform, where can I ever watch those episodes again? I think the first three seasons you could probably find somewhere, but what about the other two that are technically Netflix originals? They're going to have to put them on a disc and I go to the library to watch them? Like, I know the library has White Lotus on DVD up in Truckee. Is that what's going to happen? I have to go get Arrested Development off of a DVD? Back in the day, we all thought, you know, for example, that streaming would make certain shows always available. That was the idea of Netflix, like, buying a library. And especially so if they were produced by the platform in question. And so the fact they're taking off a Netflix originally produced show, or at least the last two seasons, this shows me that nothing is safe. Nothing is safe. So Netflix, how do I, <laughs> how do I watch Arrested Development if I want to? And HBO has done this as well. And you kind of go, when you have exclusive rights to a show and then you take it off there, it's kind of a disservice to the public, in my opinion. And so I guess that's the full circle is Netflix and the other streaming platforms are slowly becoming a disservice to the public. So maybe that's how we can relate this to public policy, politics, and foreign affairs, which this podcast does. But anyways, it's just fueling my anger towards Netflix and adding more fuel to the fire for me to just cancel the subscription permanently, which with every waking hour I have seems more inevitable. Moving on, today I want to talk about all the fun fun topics, including a bird flu that might kind of decimate wildlife populations in the United States. And then I want to talk about brutality being the point of Trumpism and a new kind of bombshell report from Rolling Stone that talks about how Trump wants to bring back public executions, death by firing squad. He wants to make them a big spectacle and how he wants to kill drug dealers because he thinks they're each responsible for like 500 murders. So lots of happy stuff today, but we will start with the bird flu. <clears throat> so I think it was back in 2021, there was a bird flu that we heard a little bit about in Europe. And bird flus are fairly common amongst avian populations, and they usually don't spread to humans or other mammals. And they're, they're usually pretty quick. They kind of burn through a population of birds usually poultry, usually farmers and egg facilities and whatever you call them, kind of purge the population and slowly the numbers dwindle and then it's over. But in this case, the, there's a bird flu outbreak that is just continuing to rage. And the Atlantic notes here, an estimated 58.4 million domestic birds have died in the United States alone. Farms with known, with known outbreaks have had to cull their chickens in mass sending the cost of eggs soaring. Zoos have herded their birds indoors to shield them from encounters with infected waterfowl. Later in the article, it talks also about how this is not just staying in avian populations and mainly poultry populations. It's also trickling into mammal, mammal populations. For example, the article talks about how everything from foxes to bears to mink to whales to seals are getting infected, and it's hitting... It's, it's hitting them much worse than humans. They're getting neurological defects, and basically by the time wildlife officials can actually get to these animals, usually they're dead or close to death. So it's really not good. And of course, this has fueled fears in the United States and in parts of Europe where this seemed to originate that humans could be next. And I will be, before we continue, I will say that humans do sometimes get this, 
but from everything I've read, it's not intense in humans, it's not a significant threat to humans, and it seems to be a serious issue with wildlife, but not for humans. And of course, you know, when I first saw this update about how much it was going through, you know, American animal populations, I was going, oh shit, like here comes the next pandemic, we're finally getting the real one that's going to jump to humans or whatnot. And from what I gather, that is not the case. Uh, This article also reiterates that. Now, what I'll say is that it isn't great that it's trickling into to, to different mammal populations. But people who know a lot more than me on this are saying that humans should not be at great risk. But anyways, getting back to why this does matter, I think to a lot of people, especially if you like eggs, or if you like wild animals, or if you like the protection of specific wild animals like the bald eagle, I think that's why this is important. So from my understanding, usually these bird flu pandemics run out of steam quite quickly. But this one's different. I want to go back to the Atlantic article for a minute. It discusses in quotes, the epidemic, which erupted first in Europe in the fall of 2021, appears to have crossed the Atlantic into Canada and then zigzagged down into the U.S. around the start of last year. American scientists have detected the virus in more than 150 wild and domestic avian species and at least a dozen different types of mammals. It is by far the longest and most diverse list of victims the virus has ever claimed on this side of the world. And I think that is something to note. So we're talking about 2021, and now we're into 2023, and it is still going rampant. And again, you are listening to a guy here who is not a biologist or a doctor. But apparently, from what I'm understanding, H5N1, which is this avian flu, could be getting could be getting more more dangerous because evolution or more specifically microbial evolution could be a culprit flu viruses from my understanding tweak their rna code and sometimes if you have two distinct versions of the path, uh, pathogen sorry that wind up in the same animal cell this can really cause a mutation or some sort of iteration of h5n1 that maybe is sparking a lethal disease in animals and there's a guy named Justin Brown, who's a patholo- a veterinary, sorry, pathologist at Penn State, that thinks it's quite likely that we've seen some sort of swapping of two genetically distinct versions of H5N1 that has caused these lethal, lethal symptoms. And this is an interesting one in a lot of ways because it's causing neurological issues that sound very painful. For example, they're seeing swans that get this like Basically, their eyes and heads become pulsary. So I heard a noise outside. But you have swans and other birds that start pulsating so much in their heads that their necks get sore and twisted. Also, in wilder settings, the Atlantic talks about how locals have spotted bald eagles literally falling out of their nests because they can't even take flight. You have other animals coming in to get help. Like there's reports of red-tailed hawks getting help from locals, and by the time they come in, it's pretty much past the point of no return. So it's kind of dark stuff here. And the question then comes, like, how are – I mean, I guess it makes sense if birds are getting it, right? But usually they they haven't been so long-lasting and deadly. So that gets back to this intermixing of different H5N1 strands. But then also people go – why are different species getting it? For example, dolphins in Florida were found getting it. And then researchers in Peru reported that they were picking up the virus in some of the sea lions that have died by the hundreds along the country's coast. In Scotland, they have also found mass die-offs of sea lions. 
And then in Wisconsin, locals happened upon basically this dying group of fox kits that were twitching, struggling to stand in the in, in any form for hours, and then they were seizing, drooling, and dying, almost like rabbit-like symptoms. And it seems like something is different with this one. It seems like there's some sort of new variant or mutation in the H5N1 because this is an issue. And of course, I didn't even know this till today when I was really digging into this, but apparently on poultry farms specifically, or I don't even know if you call them poultry farms, the places they have chickens, they actually do have vaccines that they do try to use to, you know, find some sort of solution here. But from my understanding, these vaccines for the bird flu work as well as the flu vaccine works on humans. So, you know, five out of 10, probably. And the problem here, though, is that it doesn't like eventually it's going to burn out, right? And I don't think humans should worry that it's going to directly impact us in any way. But it might really reshape our current animal wildlife populations in the United States because we also have pollution, birds hitting windows, mass die-offs from agriculture, hunting. Like, there's so many other factors. And The Atlantic has a quote from Kishana Taylor, who's a virologist at Rutgers. And she says, the current pandemic may not be directly affecting us in that almost none of us are getting sick. But the extent of its reach into wildlife means that humans will still notice its many impacts. Some locals in the southeast, for example, have already told people that they're feeling the absence of vultures as roadside deer carcasses begin to fester in the sun. The bird pandemic will have its survivors, but they are likely going to be living in a world that is quieter, lonelier, and harsher than it was before. And... I think that's the key to this is you already have a lot of animal populations that are struggling. And we have to remember that in a world with fewer birds, it's going to impact everything, even humans, especially though coyotes, snakes might go hungrier, you know, fish, insects, rats might see booms. And I don't know about you guys, but I don't know if I want more rats and insects because birds eat a lot of those. And if birds are gone, what does that mean? So Again, nature is attacking back at full force. And while humans are probably not going to have to worry about getting sick from this, down the road, this could be some serious problems for us. So I wanted to touch on this because I keep seeing reports about the bird flu. And yeah, it's probably worth mentioning. Anyways, the main thing I want to talk about today is kind of a troubling trend with Trump. God, that's a lot of T's in there. So anyways, uh... There's a Rolling Stone article that doesn't, to me, surprise me, but just more reiterates Trump's love of brutality, autocracy, and some form of fascism. So I'm just going to start with some lines out of this Rolling Stone article, and then we'll get into some thoughts. So the article starts, what do you think of firing squads? That's the question Donald Trump repeatedly asked some close associates in the run-up to his 2024 presidential campaign. And this came from three people familiar with the situation. And then the article says, in quotes, It's not an idle inquiry. The former president, if re-elected, is still committed to expanding the use of the federal death penalty and bringing back banned methods of execution, according to sources. He even, one of the sources recounts, mused about televising footage of executions, including showing condemned prisoners in the final moments of their lives. And one other segment that really got me is, the article later says in quotes, 
The former president believes this would help put the fear of God into violent criminals. He wanted to do some of these things when he, he was in office, but for whatever reasons didn't have the chance. Weird that he couldn't do some of these public executions while he was in office, right? But being serious, this troubles me that Trump actually was trying to do this the first time. And what worries me even more is that while he wanted to do this the first time, there was someone and there were groups in there that limited his craziness. But now he knows that he doesn't want to keep the people that stop him. He wants to bring in enablers. So what happens if he's reelected, I guess, is my big thing here. And it's it's weird to me because Trump, for a long time, has shown a very a very strange connection with how he views drugs specifically, violent criminals. He doesn't seem to believe in our justice system and the court of law, which has been a very crucial part of the United States. Instead, he kind of believes in authoritarian justice, which is just like you make a point with some public spectacle of killing the people that are convicted or not even convicted, but just accused of a crime. And of course, a Trump spokesman has said in a statement, in quotes, these are more ridiculous and fake news reports from idiots who have no idea what they're talking about. And the thing is, is that that's disingenuous. I just want to say that up front. I don't think this is crazy. I don't think this Rolling Stone article seems crazy at all. And the reason I say that is because for years, Trump has been telling us what he wants to do with the death penalty. He likes how dictators deal with the addicted and the drug dealers of society. He likes this idea of kind of retribution through force and brutality and violence. Trump has always talked about how he likes what Rodrigo Duterte did in the Philippines, right? Just executing drug dealers, even if it was for a minor crime. He talks about how Xi, President Xi Jinping in China, can just get rid of drug dealers and stop violent crime but he doesn't seem to understand that what separates us from these people is that the government kind of just decides if you're guilty. He's always been fascinated, though, with executing drug dealers, and he likes the brutality and the spectacle of it. Of it. And part of me does wonder if it's because he's a teetotaler, right? He's definitely a teetotaler or something. I know his brother died of alcoholism and... You know, he's always been very against people that are addicted. I, I remember reading Maggie Haberman's book about it, which I think was one of the better ones about Trump. And she talked about how he saw addiction as a sign of weakness. And his brother's death, I think, really scarred him. And I just can't help but wonder if his past has made him kind of a hardcore anti-drug person that's willing to kind of stamp it out of society. Because Trump is weird, right? Like, politically, he's always been all over the place. But the one thing, well, there's a few things. But one of the things he's always been very specific about is finding addiction a form of weakness. And you see this through history, well, even though some of these leaders do become addicted. But a lot of, like, autocrats do find addiction and mental health to be weaknesses that they want to stamp out. And... You know, going full circle back, it's not like that's why that spokesman for Trump who said this is fake news from idiots who have no idea what they're talking about. I think that's all bullshit because all we have to do is go back to when Trump talked about similar things at rallies for the last year or so. I want to say it was back in October when he said something to the effect of if the drug dealer is guilty, they get executed. And then he talked about how they would send the bullet to the family 
and they want the family to pay for the cost of the bullet. These are always made-up stories that are really strange. It's because Trump is such a bullshitter. And when he goes up there, it always disturbs me about how half of his stories are about brutality. There's the one about the bullet and the pig blood. I, I don't know, but... He's also said stuff to the effect of if you want to stra- uh, if you want to stop the drug epidemic in the country, you do better to, you know, kill people dot 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 even if it doesn't sound nice. Stuff like that. He's he's clearly fine with like extrajudicial actions. And I guess I think all of this is terrifying because like I've kind of alluded to already, it shows that brutality is something that Trump likes and he thinks he wanted it to be part of his previous administration and he wants to run on it being worse. And I've said for a long time that I think Trump was somewhat contained and limited in his first presidency. And I think this one will be off the rails if he gets into power. And now I don't still think it's likely he is president, but I do think that it's becoming more and more likely With almost every day, unfortunately. And I read an interesting statistic in in one of the other articles I was reading, and I'll share it. So apparently, you know, it's not like Trump's going to... Okay, actually, let me step back for a minute. So it's not like Trump would just want to be like, we're going to bring out like autocratic murder squads, we're just going to kill dissidents. I don't think that's what Trump's really talking about. He wants to be a truly cruel and brutal despot who brings back the death penalty in a very vicious way. And during his presidency, he actually started to show that. So going back to the article I was reading, it says here in quotes, the former president's zeal for the death penalty penalty has already proven lethal. During the final months of his administration, he oversaw the executions of 13 federal prisoners. Since 1963, only three federal prisoners had been executing, executed, sorry, including Oklahoma City bomber Timothy McVeigh. In, in January 2021, in the final stretch before Biden would become tre- president, Trump oversaw three executions in four days. So Trump's, Trump oversaw during his time 16 federal executions, while prior to that, three had happened since 1963. So this is a guy who clearly likes death and he likes to make a point. This is what happens, I think, in a broader point, a more meta point, is when you have an idiot who doesn't understand how the system works, he wants to make points, so he does things that other presidents would not be willing to do. There's also a part in the Rolling Stone article that discusses how it looks like Trump wanted to do more. The Rolling Stone article notes here in quotes, Former Attorney General Bill Barr, the ideological architect of Trump's execution binge, told Rolling Stone in December that Trump and his administration would have more people put to death soon had he won a second term in 2020. Barr responded, yes, that was the expectation. By the way, fuck you, Bill Barr. I just want to say that. Fuck him. He is such a garbage person, you know? He claims the moral high road time and time again. He speaks out about how Trump didn't win the election. But behind closed doors, he's like pretty much fine with everything Trump does as long as it doesn't make him look bad. And then when it makes him look bad, he speaks out. People like Bill Barr are the exact inhibitors of this type of bullshit. But anyways, I think Trump's obsession with execution, with the optics of killing drug 
dealers, with bringing kind of authoritarian justice, I think it gets to something about Trump that really scares me. It's that this guy likes the optics of brutality towards someone else. He likes the idea of scare tactics that are mainly autocratic and against every semblance of Western justice and law and order that we know. That Rolling Stone article had also noted that he liked the firing squad, for example, and I'm laughing because I, it's going to stop me from crying. But he had liked the firing squad, not because it was more effective or even humane, but because it was more dramatic and it was better for the cameras. Guys, <laughs> this is someone who wants to be an autocrat, who uses violence to instill fear into a population. It's so obvious. And that's why I'm always surprised when you still talk to Trump supporters who think this is a good guy. This is a guy who cares about the country and wants to make it better. Bringing back public executions is not going to make this country better. Being cruel and not understanding the actual roots of drug addiction and drug dealing and the war on drugs and instead just using the state to kill people that are innocent until proven guilty is not the case. And I think Charlie Sykes has really summed up these issues quite well in an article he wrote probably about two weeks ago. And before I get into that, I will just say that I always thought that cruelty was kind of the point of Trumpism or even Ron DeSantis. It's kind of the North Star for this movement, right? You kind of want to like make a point to the vulnerable that you're not going to give in. And maybe that's somewhat fascist. I don't know. But Charlie Sykes, anyways, goes even further and says that cruelty itself is not enough. He thinks brutality is the point. He starts his article by reminding us that brutality itself is not some impulse. It's not a side effect. In, in, in instead, it's an ideology. And he gets into how, and actually I read this book. Adam Skewer with The Atlantic published a really good book kind of a year or two after Trump was elected. And it's called uh, Cruelty is the Point. And he talks about how the whole movement could basically hear the spectacle of cruel laughter throughout the Trump era because they wanted to own the liberals and put down anyone who was on that side. And the cruelty was the point. Like it talks about the child separation policies at the border, talked about Trump's treatment of women, minorities, the trans and gay communities. You could go down the line. It's basically picking on the vulnerable. And anyways, Sykes goes even further in quotes talking about how Cruelty is no longer enough. As Trump seeks a return to power in 2024, he has already pivoted to brutality, and there is nothing subtle about it. For Trump, this is hardly a new uh, theme. His enthusiasm for violence, including torture, extrajudicial murder, and shooting both migrants and protesters, has been a constant feature of his politics for years. By the way, like remember when Mark Esper reported that Trump just wanted to shoot the protesters during the George Floyd era? Anyways, Charlie Sykes later writes... In quotes here, indeed, the, in quotes, pro-life former president makes no secret of his passion for actual violence, including the maiming, wounding, flesh-tearing, shooting, and killing of human beings. And it's something interesting about Trump. For a guy who has lived a pretty sheltered life, who I would not pick in a fight to win, he's very disturbing. He's very disturbing about how he interacts with the world and what he thinks should be the remedy, I guess, for controlling society. It is very troubling, and I, I, I don't think there's any way around talking about that. And I, I think this brutality that Charlie Sykes discusses and this cruelty that Adam Skewer discusses kind of get to a point, kind of the elephant in the room, I guess you could say. Because basically, what Trump wants 
is some form of silent fascism. That's what it is. I guess it's not what Trump wants. Let me rephrase it. What it is is silent fra- uh, fascism. It's fascism without saying it. Now, there's a pretty interesting thinker named Hannah Arendt, and she wrote a piece in the, I think it was the early 21st century, and it's called The Origins of Totalitarianism. And I think she brings up points that I've focused on when I've talked about fascism a lot on this podcast. She discusses how fascism in the 1930s focused on violence and brutality. One quote from uh, The Origins of Totalitarianism is, in quotes here, Fascists elevated cruelty to a major virtue because it contradicted society's humanitarian and liberal hypocrisy. And I think there is something about fascism that removes itself from humanitarianism and from decency and compassion. Because that's what you do see in a lot of the fascism of the 1930s, is it's something that's looking to be efficient and cold. I mean, all you have to do is go to Milan and go through the Milan train station and just see, like, I mean, on paper, everyone says Mussolini built a very historic and beautiful train station, put a lot of money and time into it. But when you get there, there's something cold about it. It doesn't have the art and the beauty of like a Renaissance style building in, say, like Florence or something. Instead, it's cold and brick. And there's a brutality to fascist architecture. I guess it's true. There's a brutality to fascist architecture, because at the end of the day, it wasn't about the beauty of the liberal society. It was about the coldness of human nature. And I think Trump is a portal into that. And I I think Trump has been an ever-evolving person for a lot of his professional and political life. But since he's been president, he's been on kind of a fast path, fast track to wanting to be an authoritarian. And, for example, I don't think Ron DeSantis is a fascist, but I I think Trump's desire for violence and harshness and cruelty do lead him down that direction. And so this article doesn't tell me anything new, but it, it, it summarizes better than anything else what Trump is willing to do. And... I guess when you have a president who's willing to execute people that he doesn't seem or deem to be fit, he views them weak, you have to wonder where does it stop? Because it's, at least from my understanding of history and authoritarian regimes, it always starts with a general excuse for getting rid of someone, and then it leads to anyone who falls under that definition as the definition changes. Like, you can say you're getting rid of communists, executing communists, for example, but by maybe two years down the road, you're actually executing people that are on the right that just you deem are communists because it's a word you can use to alienate them. And I'm worried that Trump views weakness in the same way. I'm, I'm not at all saying that Trump is going to just start you know, going after all communists, but when you have a president who's willing to entertain extrajudicial measures and make a spectacle out of them, What happens when the party that's backing him also demands it? And what does that do to the Overton window of our judicial system? So I am very troubled that Trump is not doing worse in the polls. I still don't believe that Ron DeSantis can beat Trump. I will say it on the record now. I don't. I would love to be wrong, but I just don't think I'm wrong. So we need need a coalition of Americans to come together 
and make sure this guy is not president again. Because I don't know about you guys, but Nikki Haley is, is at least not calling for this. Bernie Sanders has never called for this. AOC has never called for this. Joe Biden obviously doesn't call for this. Ron DeSantis hasn't even called for this. Like, we need to form somewhat of an acceptance that we can't have people calling for this stuff. But the problem is, is it's red meat for the base, and the base soaks it up. So anyways, we'll end with that. Happy stuff, right? Netflix is being depressing. We have a troubling bird flu epidemic. And it sounds like Trump wants public executions. So keeping it light as always. But what I will say, and this is something certain, is that you can find me on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, YouTube, all the rest of that stuff. Have a great Thursday. If you partake in Thirsty Thursday, go get a drink. If you'd like to stay in, you do that as well. But anyways, happy Thursday. We're almost to the weekend. Take care. Peace. Peace.